once you get into the music, yeah. these are all the permutations of it, and then right. you don't realise you're absorbing it. Like I said, I, I was already, even by my late teens, my head was already full of tonnes of music. Welcome to the Needlefish Podcast. I'm Jim Firth. And I'm John Harland. Each episode, we will do our best to bring practical wisdom and advice from experts in various fields. So we hope you enjoy our show. And if you do, please like, subscribe and share with your friends. Today's guest is an internationally renowned recording artist, Snowboy a.k.a. Mark Cockgrove. He's played and recorded with artists such as Lisa Stansfield, Imelda May, Mick Hucknall, Mark Ronson, Basher, Misha Paris, James Taylor Quartet, Big Boy Bloater, to name just a few. Snowboy has had 22 singles and 16 albums released on various labels, ranging from Polydor, Big Life, Acid Jazz, Ubiquity, Chili Funk and Freestyle. His latest critically acclaimed album, New York Afternoon, is on his own label. He's also a producer, resident DJ at the South London Soul Train, author, band leader of Snowboy and the Latin Section. He's a master percussionist and congaro and has an encyclopedic knowledge of music. Oh, all right. nice to be here. What a list of, of credits that is. Mark, we know you as Mark. Uh, everybody knows you as Snowboy. Can we call you Mark today? Yeah, call me Mark. We yeah. could call you Mark yeah. today. Great. Okay. It's it's great to have you here, and we've been really excited with the prospect of you coming in and, and doing the podcast. Growing up in Southend, it must have been... How, how was it for you in, in, in your younger years? There were different times, weren't they? I mean, I'm going to be 60 this year so it was that old-fashioned thing of making more your in your own entertainment because wasn't it in those days yeah. and things were things were very very different I, I i had a really nice you know my, my family my parents didn't have two pennies to rub together but i would never have known that we had a just a good good fun upbringing what were your your early cultural and music influences mark when i was a kid all you really listened to was you know the records that your parents had really and my they only had like 10 or 12 albums it wasn't till i suppose you know uh, end of junior school early senior school you know you started to hear glam rock you know that was my my period the sweet t-rex david bowie hello all those kind of bands and then all of a sudden the film that'll be the day came out it was a big teddy boy revival going on in south end well there was around the country but it was at its biggest in south end my brother paul who's older than me he went mad on rock and roll and the film That'll Be The Day, which was rock and roll based, and then the film The Year After American Graffiti, which was about American um, early 60s, and that was all rock and roll. And Paul so, was a big influence on you, right? A big influence, yeah, because that all of a sudden from... So I, I did like the kind of the charty stuff, and particularly the glam rock, but all of a sudden all we heard in the house was rock and roll and doo-wop and rhythm and blues, all 50... And it blew my mind, you know, it blew my mind. So uh, you, you went through a period where, obviously, that was a big influence on how you were behaviourally and, and you dressed in in a suitable rockabilly style, Teddy uh, Boy style? No, my brother did. My mum and dad didn't really want Paul to dress oh, okay. that way because they remembered how antisocial Teds were in the 50s and, yeah. they, and they was, you know... But he did anyway... But I read, I mean, about you, yeah. obviously, and I read that you became disillusioned with that scene. Yes, because when the whole Rockabilly thing started happening uh, mid-70s, 
out of the Teddy Boy thing. There was a lot of trouble between the Teddy Boys and the Rockabillies. It's weird considering they all listen to the same music. And um, I was still too young to go to those clubs, although I did. I, did, I went to a few. My my mum and dad let me go with my brother along as he looked after me. He was really too young to have been in there, let alone me. I, I was a very sensitive kid and there was that crackle in the air of there's going to be trouble any minute in there, even though the music was exciting and, and, and I loved it. But I I found it too nerve-wracking to, to go into those clubs, really. Mm. So. Do you still have the passion for rockabilly music? Completely, yeah, completely. You see, the thing is, if you think about it, up until I went to college... Uh, when I was 17, art college, up until that point, really all I listened to at home, also I listened to the odd chart thing, obviously, but but any, but any I listened to anything f- 50s or earlier. And when you think of it, it's very unusual for someone of my age, as a teenager at the time, to have been listening to rock and roll, rockabilly, rhythm and blues, western swing, hillbilly, Chicago blues, country blues, Cajun, Zydeco, swing... That's a lot of music to take in. Yeah, was uh, Paul uh, listening to all this as well? Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, this was all what you get... Once you get into the music, yeah. these are all the permutations of it, and right. then you don't realise you're absorbing it. Like I said, I, I was already, even by my late teens, my head was already full of tonnes of music. So yeah. when you transferred over to a different style of music, obviously yeah. I read that you, you your first venture into the, into the gold mine. Yes. Yes, tell us about that. that that's an incredible... Yeah, yeah. The gold mine on Canvey Island in the 70s, that was the number one club in the country, or discos. They called them discos then, not, not, not clubs. And the reason it was so big and so famous was because the DJ there was so famous, Chris Hill, and he was very large in the life, massive personality, incredible knowledge of music. And how old were you at this time? I was 17. Right. I was at art college. Yeah. What were uh, you studying? Graphic design. Yeah. So I was at South Tech and... It was an immense time, you see, because because when I went to college, I went there, and as I say, all I loved was anything 50s, maybe early 60s, but before. Of course, when I'm at college, the art and fashion departments were like hand-in-hand, really, like everyone, all kindred spirits, really. Yeah. And, of course, every, you know, they're all into what's brand new and they're all, all the latest music. And, and there was this rockabilly kid. Well, I mean, uh, no, no one knocked me for it. I mean, it was an interesting time, funny enough, because when I was at college, of course... Two, the two-tone started to come out as well the two-tone scar thing yeah that just started punk of course new wave post-punk if you like because interestingly enough in my year at college dave garn from depeche mode alison moyer yeah my childhood friend paul webb who went on to be one of the founder members of talk talk yeah that was all in my year wow. at college you know so it was quite in south end in south end oh, yeah i didn't know that okay yeah yep. and i met one of the guys from the shaman couple of years ago and he was at college there at yeah, the same yeah. time as well in the same year so it was a bit of a melting pot for future talent well it was incredible so the fashion was really really outrageous at college because it was say post-punk just pre-new romantic and we know how outrageous yeah. that fashion was yeah but the the real thing at college was jazz funk or reggae you know like they were the real underground things and everyone's talking about the gold mine and, and this guy Chris Hill that was coming back to the gold mine and I'd never even been to a disco I, I didn't know any soul records or a disco records it was alien to me entirely so Chris Hill what kind of music was he playing at the gold mine at the time? Um, the music Chris was playing at the gold mine was the latest imports it was all about in those days it was all about the very latest jazz funk imports uh, disco jazz funk soul 
and he was really, really far ahead. A friend of mine, who was the main record distributor in those days, he said that when he used to pick the imports up from the airport once a week, on the way to the warehouse, he would stop at Chris Hill's house and he would stop at Robbie Vincent's house, who was the DJ on Radio London at the time, and that was the soul show that everyone listened to on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So an incredible show. So this record distributor, Tony Monson, I mean, he actually told, this is from the horse's mouth, he said to me, it was worth my while stopping at Chris's, he said, because if Chris played a record, or Robbie played a record, everyone wanted it. So financially, it was the right thing to do. So you knew, there was no oldies played at at the gold mining, it was as as new as possible. And the music was incredible. It was very jazzy as well, because Chris's background, he was a first-generation Soho mod, if you like, yeah. and he he's, he lived the he lived the jazz life of Soho. Obviously, the music was a massive yeah. influence on you, but also the, there was the atmosphere that, yeah. you, that really took yeah your 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 imagination, wasn't yeah. it? Tell us about that. Well, that was the thing with the gold mine, you see, because there was such a build up for it, and we, everyone was going. It was his thing at that point. The whole kind of jazz funk thing wasn't the gargantuan thing it became. So anyway, I reluctantly went to the gold mine because all my friends were going I wasn't going out I was listening to my records at home because I was really scared to go to these rock and roll and rockabilly clubs well they were they were just rock and roll clubs in the day but I was frankly I was bored and so I went along because they were all my friends thought I was going to hate it and literally the second you walked into the gold mine it was one of those moments that you have in your life where you know you're in the right place and, and do you reckon and, that do you think that changed your whole life it completely changed my life chris changed my life yeah. uh, i spoke to him today actually this afternoon how did you get to know chris then i got to know him because i uh, i interviewed him for a book that i wrote called from jazz funk confusion to acid jazz yeah. it's quite a funny thing i think when you interview someone for a book somehow or other there's definitely a bond you definitely there's a bond that lingers afterwards and chris would just contact me out of the blue and i and, and i know ne- and i never even to this day even though the amount of times i see chris regularly i still think that's chris hill because he's still he, he considers me his best friend but i'm still thinking that's chris hill <laughs> you know so you held him in such high regard as resident dj at the gold mine yeah, well, well he, he was really, from this part of the country, he was really like the head of, if you like, the home counties DJs. Everyone looked up to Chris, everyone wanted to be Chris. I think what it was is because when you went in the gold mine and it was so packed and, and it was incredible dancers and the music was loud and amazing and the fashion was ridiculous in there, it felt edgy, but not in a trouble way, In a, it was electric. And it, it attracted people from all over the place, didn't it? It did, yeah, it did. A friend of mine, Chris Sullivan, who who went on to own the Wag Club in Soho, which used to be the Whiskey Go-Go, he had that club in the 80s and 90s. Chris he used to bring coaches from Wales to the gold mine. I was there one night, because I ended up later on DJing there, as the, if you like, the caretaker, when Chris and Jeff were away, with two friends of mine, Grumpy and Russ. And I was DJing there one night, and a coach load from Liverpool turned up. I was talking to some friends of mine the other day from Glasgow. They bought coaches from Glasgow twice to the gold mine. A friend of mine in Aberdeen the other day, again on Facebook, good old Facebook, he said they got a coach from Aberdeen once. There was coaches from Newcastle regularly. This was a little club that held 300 people on Canvey Island. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. It was a country club, apparently, in the 20s. Changed its name to the gold mine in 72 or 71.
I want to go back to to Ronnie Scott's actually. Yes. I remember going to Ronnie Scott's with my wife Jackie to go and see Diodato. Yeah. We thoroughly enjoyed the show, and there was this lunatic on the front row right next to Diodato playing four congas, mm. and I was completely mesmerised. In fact, I was I was more mesmerised by you playing the congas there than probably anything else. And interestingly, John and I were speaking with your brother on a different project. It was something to do with Southend Film Festival, and we were looking to set up you know, a jazz night downstairs, and Paul mentioned, he said, oh, you should speak to my brother Mark. He's quite a famous jazz musician. And I thought, oh, OK, this, is, this sounds promising. So got in touch with you, and you came along, and we've been uh, friends ever since. And I would never have thought, sort of three or four years ago, sat in Ronnie Scott's watching you play, mm. that uh, we'd be sat here now having this conversation. So it's amazing how life life happens, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, and also, I mean, to, to develop this conversation further, also, you had such a big influence on this man that he actually now is your pupil. He is, and, well, and I find myself endlessly complimenting Jim every week. Worked so hard at his playing, the talented swine... So let's talk about percussion. <laughs> you need to change the let's, subject let's quickly, though. Let's move on. You went moving swiftly yeah, on. I don't think I am that talented, to be honest. Uh, I think, but but having said that, I think your technique of teaching is quite phenomenal. The fact that um, you know you you take no prisoners, and initially the first thing you said to me is, Jim, you know what? I'm quite a hard taskmaster, and it's all about technique. And yeah. you know, if you're not gonna, if you're not doing it correctly, I'm going to keep on telling you that you're not doing it correctly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you got to get the technique right, and that is absolutely true. I think that's the same as anything in life, yeah. in actual fact, isn't it? You know, it's get, get your fundamentals right first, and then everything, every, anything's possible, isn't it? After so, that. So, when when did you start? When did you decide that actually, you know what? In fact, I tell you what, let's go even further back than that. How did you get the name Snowboy? Oh, Snowboy is uh, oh, that's uh, that's an easy one. At seventeen, just started college, and uh, I also joined a local amateur dramatic society called the little theater club which is now called the little theater company funny enough it was the do you remember avon ladies i don't know if they i don't suppose they still have them but we, we had an avon i, I think they do actually do they yeah, not probably not as we knew them when we were younger they used to come around with a little case didn't That's they right, yeah. so, so yeah. my mum's my avon lady she was giving out she was trying to plug the, like, the next show blah 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 and anyway, I think they were looking for young people for this next show, West Side Story, you know. And my mum said, oh, perhaps Mark might want to have a go. Um, and she said, well, yeah, well, that'd be good. But, you know, do you think he'd be extrovert enough? Because you, you need to be extrovert. And what she didn't know is that, you know, every year we go to holiday camps, you know, I'd be the first one up grabbing the mic at lunchtimes, you know, trying to get on the, you know, to, uh, having to sing, any excuse to get on the stage. Anyway, so I so auditioned and joined and got in, and it was West Side Story. And the character that I played in, in West Side Story was a minor part of one of the Jets, one of the gangs, the Jets and the Sharks. And the character that I played was Snowboy. And, um, ah, yeah. Okay. And it wasn't till many years later when I was released. My first record came out before I was actually performing. It was a studio project, so performing as a band, I mean to say. So I was doing a lot of pop work, yeah. but I'd never released anything myself before, and someone asked me if I wanted to do a project. All of a sudden, I was having to think of an artist's name, you know, and then, and then Snowboy, and I suddenly remembered the character Snowboy from West Side Story, and thought, oh, that sounds like a good stage name. Better than Mark Cockrow. So that name, obviously, you went forward with that name, and, it, and it's now become a, a kind of iconic name, isn't it? Well... 
it's established. You know, that's the good thing. That's the lovely thing about it. It's been a bit confusing in recent, more recent years because there is an artist in South Africa, a black artist that, that makes quite minimal club music, and he's called Snowboy. There is some kind of a doll in America or something called Snowboy. So sometimes when you Google Snowboy, it's not just me that comes up like it would have done either 10 years ago. And percussion, why percussion? What got you into that in the first place? Tell well, us the story well, of how. Well, the world, there's two reasons. Uh, one was that, uh, again, uh, Chris Hill at the Gold Mine used to, him being quite an entertainer when he was a DJ, even the music was really serious, but he, he took... He sometimes on the mic he had a bit of echo or reverb on there and he would sing harmonies to some of the songs people didn't even realise that he was singing because he blended so well And but he'd also pick a tambourine up or a cowbell or something like that and play along you know with the mic lower and just play along so it's something visual and as a young 17, 18 year old I thought that looked really impressed you know, yeah, I was yeah. really impressed with that it yeah. looked great so I, so I wanted to be Chris Hill but also, the music that I was hearing there, I, I started collecting immediately, particularly the more jazz funk, jazz fusion stuff that, that he was playing and Jeff was playing and other DJs that I was hearing by then. So I started to collect it and I started to get really interested in what these exotic sounds were on the records that I I didn't even know it was called percussion at the time. And then I, you know, then I found out it was and then I so I knew what to look for in the back of the record sleeves, look for the percussionist. And then I used to make a list of the instruments they played. And there used to be a drum shop in Hadley where I lived, well, a music shop called Honky Tonk. And above Honky Tonk, there was a drum shop, drum department. And I just used to go in there with a list of items not to buy but I wanted to know what they looked like because they sounded so yeah. otherworldly and exotic to me these names Barimbao Quika you know so they would get the catalogue out and show me what they looked like and and, and then, I, then I suddenly started to save up a little bit of money here and there like bits of my college money or, or you know put a bit of dinner money by you know and um, I started to buy a few little bits and pieces and never thought about performing them I just wanted to know what made those sounds. So, what was the moment you? There was a decision, obviously, you made. I'm going to. Oh I, no, actually, I'm going to. I want to perform. I want to actually learn how to play this. Thing. Right. So, this guy joined the little theatre club. Uh, he, was, he only did the one show, but he. I don't know quite why he joined. Uh, but he, he. He had a what they call a publishing deal with Polydor. All right. At the time, he was he was an incredible songwriter and pianist. One of these people who was 21 and he could do any play anything, sing anything. Great vocal range. Publishing was really like because where Polydor would buy buy your songs. You weren't necessarily as an artist, but they would buy your songs and and try and place them with other artists. So he had this publishing deal with Polydor, and he knew that I had some bits and pieces of percussion, and he did, and he he was doing these demos, and he and he wanted a bit of percussion on that, and he didn't know any percussionists. So he said, well, "Would you come and play on my demos?" And up to that point, I never even thought about even performing it. So, mm. so I went to the studio with no technique and played on his demos, and I really enjoyed it. And because I was close to his name is Chris Sutton. Because I was close to Chris and I enjoyed playing on his demos, I wanted to do my best for him. I had the opportunity of having lessons up in London and I worked really hard on the, uh, the lessons because I wanted to play better on his demos for him. Were these lessons specifically Congo? Did you want to become a Congaro initially or was it just was it percussion in general? Just percussion in general. Yeah, okay. just percussion in general. Yeah. Funny enough, I bought my congas from... Because I was actually a red coat at Butlins when I was 21. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, no, through you, didn't it? I, I, no, I've got to confess, I always wanted to be a red coat. Yeah. But yeah. how did you get, how did, the, where was that, in Bogner? Uh, Clacton. In Clacton, okay, go on. Yeah. Well, you see, the thing is, is our family holidays were always little cheap and cheerful out of season a week away at a Warner's holiday camp. It was either in Dovercourt Bay in near Harwich or it was uh, Minster on the Isle of Sheppey. But we always went to holiday camp every year and that always made a massive impression on me. Uh, like seeing the... At Warner's, they were called green coats and then bl- Pontins is blue coats, Buttons red coats. And even as a kid, what well, was a teenager, I was obsessed with holiday camps and like the, the year... Co- couldn't go around quick enough to the next holiday because I'd make the the very best of it and you couldn't keep me off the stage at all. I was up there wanting to sing and I wanted to be a... So uh, you were showing performances from a very early age then, Mark? Well, yeah. I, I even wanted to do that. I wanted to be a comic. I was obsessed with comics and wanted to be a comic artist as well. So I, I always thought I'm either going to work at holiday camp or I'm going to be a comic artist. When I was 17, I actually got a job briefly at one of those places I went to on holiday at, at Minster on the Isle of Sheppey. I never, a bit like Peggy on Heidi Heyer, I never quite got my green coat there. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, in fact, I left, a guy, I kind of got sacked really, there was no argument, but I, I forgot to tell them when I went to work at Minster that I had to leave for a couple of weeks to do my exams at school. Because it was, I'd literally, like, and they went, you never told us you were, you were going to have to go and do your exams, you know. And so they, um, so they said, well, there won't be a job for you, you know. After if, yeah. I'm afraid, you know. So I only lasted two weeks there, but so I didn't get me didn't get me a green coat. Fast forwarding a little, yeah. Bit. Then I went to art school. Then you went to art school, and then you're learning. What happened? What, what, how did your first gig? What did that? Did, what did that look like? First gig. Oh God. We're just backtracking slightly. So. Because yeah. I got my congas yeah. when I worked... So eventually I worked at Butlins, okay, for a season, the day after I was 21. Because they're not cheap congas, are they? No, they weren't. And and in the drum shop, in this music shop in Hadley, they were in the window, the, yeah. these second-hand congas, and they were really battered, and they had stickers all over them. And I kept on saying to my mum while I was away uh, working at Butlins, are, are those congas still in the window? Because <laughs> I had a bit of money from the 21st birthday. If you do the season, you get two weeks bonus. So so the day I got back, I was straight up there. I think mum drove me up there and bought these congas and then, of course, got them home. Now what do you do with them? Because obviously I, the good thing with congas is anyone can get something out of them. If someone can't sit at a piano and suddenly start playing it, but at least with congas or bongos, you can, even if you don't know the technique or the rhythms, that kind of stuff, you can enjoy them yeah. straight away. You can tap something on them and, and yeah, get yeah. something back immediately. So at least I had that. But yeah, but it's not it's not easy though, Mark. It's not, it? no, 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 no. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's not easy. <laughs> no, no, but that's what yeah. they have percussion, obviously, at school. A kid, you know, like a, in infant schools and that. Yeah, you know. yeah. Yeah. So, what did the first gig look like after you'd learned yes, them? And so, you're you're, pro- you're getting better, and obviously you get the opportunity to to play. Well, as soon as I bought the congas, before I even had a lesson, word started to go round the area. You know that I, I think I, I think I did a, a I bumped into someone in the music shop, a friend of mine, uh, now a very good close friend of mine, Bill, and uh, we got talking about percussion in the shop, and he said, "Oh, will you come and play on my." It was a, it was an ele- electronic group, quite a, like quite a heavy electronic what they call industrial kind of group. And then I put some percussion on that stuff for them. I hadn't, still hadn't had a lesson yet <laughs> on congas, but I was playing what I felt 
felt right. right and it was okay. in time. So, I, okay, I think I had yeah. a fairly yeah. f- fairly okay sense of rhythm. So it was kind of was in in time with it. But then from there, then another local it was an alternative group. They called themselves An Antic Hay. And and the, the guitarist of that band was an old school friend, Pete Jewett. And then he said, Oh, were you are you interested in joining our band? You know, so I at that point I hadn't really had a lesson. I just had a little bag of percussion, two congas, not even any bongos or anything like that. And then um, almost quite quickly from having a set of congas, I was already playing in two bands. Yeah. And it didn't, it never right. bothered me. And to this day, it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I've even got I've even got up on stage in front of a quarter of a million people at Rio at Maracanã Stadium, and it doesn't bother me. I, I don't get that fear of going on. I've never had stage fright. So performing... That probably all that holiday camp thing from when I was a kid jumping up on the mic <laughs> kind of got rid of that. But it, it, I wish I did have the fear. They said it, fear is a good thing. But I don't. I don't have it going on stage. That's a wonderful thing, though, isn't it? Because it's just it's supreme confidence in what you're doing. Well, I love it. Yeah. I love performing. I love to I watch know, people's I can, faces. I and... can see when you are you come alive when you're performing. I've seen that a couple of times when when you're on stage, Mark. It's, it's a good thing to see. And and talk about your, your teacher. Robin Jones, what yeah. uh, what happened? How did you meet Robin? I was telling you earlier on about a guy that used used to get coach loads from uh, Wales to the gold mine. His name's Chris Sullivan. Well, he ended up owning. He used to be a very famous club in the sixties called the Whiskey A Go Go. Then he took over ownership of it in the eighties, and it was called the Wag, and it was probably the hippest club in the country at the time. And anyway, they started a jazz night there on a Monday, and the first, and, and I went there. And they were doing the samba percussion thing on stage as well as the DJ and a DJ session. And uh, there was this bald guy playing a percussion instrument and I I couldn't work out what he was doing. And as soon as they finished, I was a little bit tiddly and I went up to him on stage and I said, excuse me, how how do you play that? And how do you... Blah, blah, blah. And then we got chatting and he said, oh, uh, he said, I think you should come around for for some lessons. I went, oh, okay. And he, he... he gave me his number and he and I said, he, I said, what's your name then? And he said, oh, you might know of me. My name's Robin Jones. And at that time in the jazz world in the early eighties, Rob, Robin was one of the biggest. Like everyone wanted Robin's records. You know, he, he said, oh, you might know of me. My name's Robin Jones. And I went, Robin Jones. I said, I've got your records. And so I, cat, well, I staggered off stage into my carload of friends that come up for the night and. Um, I said that was Robin Jones, and because they knew, because I was so mad on Robin's records that they knew them as well. And they, I said, I'm going to have lessons with. Then all of a sudden, I was going, God, he's going to have he's going to have lessons with Robin Jones. You know, they're almost kind of uh, talking about me in hushed tones of, you know, you do know he's going to have lessons with Robin Jones. What I didn't know was I was the first person that Robin ever taught. You oh, know, really? Ro- yeah, yeah, Robin. So that he'd obviously, I mean, that was that that was uh, incredible. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was. It was fun because he, he liked to chat and an hour lesson was impossible with Robin. You know, I mean, I used to, I used to have, a, have a lesson every two weeks because that's when I got the dole check because I just left college. <laughs> so I used to have to get a train from Rayleigh to Liverpool Street, then a tube to King's Cross and then a tube to Southgate and then a bus from Southgate to, to where he lived. So it was a lot of effort to get there for the lesson. So I used to really practice hard. All with your congas on your back? Yeah. No, 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 it was all at Robin's. Oh, OK. I had this image of the... Exactly Did you? That, Did yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, God, it was a lot of effort to get to, to to his house for a lesson. But, of course, Robin didn't even... The thought of an hour lesson with Robin, it was impossible. I mean, because he used to really love a chat 
and then he'd do you some food. It was endless tea. You'd be around there for four hours, you know, no problem at all. So, yeah, so he obviously wasn't doing it for financial uh, reasons because he wouldn't have wasted so much time. At that time, Matt Bianco were like enormous pop band and he he was the percussionist with Matt Bianco. So quite often I wouldn't see him for a couple of months while he was away on tour or doing TVs and and stuff like that. And he was very, very in-demand percussionist. Who was your biggest influence in terms of practising and and learning? (sighs) Oh dear, that's that's a difficult one because I think my practising has always been self-motivated. Yeah. I think mainly because I couldn't really afford those lessons, so I had to make sure I was ready for that next lesson. So I used to put a lot of work in, you know, four, five, six hours a day, maybe seven hours a day, more more seven hours a day than anything, uh, apart from on maybe a Sunday I might do four hours, but I was obsessed with practising. So that was all self-motivational. Because of collecting all these records from what I was hearing at the Goldmine and other places, a friend of mine, Bob well, friend now, Bob Jones, another influential DJ on me, the music he played. So I was, I was building up this great record collection. So I always had certain albums that I would always practice to every day because they were just the right tempos to, to practice to. What were they? Well, one was an album by Eddie Palmieri, the salsa pianist, salsa Latin jazz pianist called Solito. And one was an all-star Afro-Cuban album by the Super All-Star. It wasn't Super All-Stars for some reason, I don't know, but it was the Super All-Star. And it was a, a Tita Puente and everybody. It's like a who's who of... Obviously on on record, you know, play through, I'd turn it over, put the needle on the second side, play through, then I'd turn it over again and play it again. And, and both of those albums, every day, over and over again for hours. And then uh, there was... Um, a percussionist from California called Jack Costanzo, who was the first real star percussionist. You know, he taught Marlon Brando and and James Dean. Really, he was like, he was he played with Nat King Cole yeah. through the forties. When you see Nat's trio, someone on congas as a fourth, that's Jack. He was yeah. with him for a long, long time, and I've got to know Jack very well. In, in fact, in later life, I'm proud to say. Jack, you heard predominantly on a lot of film soundtracks in those days. Really fast bongo player, and and there was a lot of that in those days. Well, a lot of there? that, yeah, a lot of that. And I mean, Jack, Jack was really on, on most of that stuff. You know, sixties and seventies movies. Those. Oh yeah, well, no, this was, this was before. I mean, no, we're talking that. about forties and fifties here. But Jack's stuff was really, really fast. He had like an immense technique. Yeah, so I'd listen to his Eddie Palmieri album over and over again, Super All Star, and I aspired to keep up to the Jack Costanzo records because they were so fast yeah. and I could never could and I never got disappointed and one day it was one of those situations where it just felt like the chains had come off my wrist because all of a sudden I could suddenly keep up with these records no problem whatsoever Wow! it just happened one day you know it was a lovely moment to know I could finally keep up with Jack's records and what advice would you give someone who's taking up percussion at the moment it's all about practice it's all very well learning stuff off of YouTube. I mean, YouTube's incredible and I go on it a lot myself, but it's a bit dry just learning rhythms on there and, and nothing else, you know, nothing cultural. You know, just get a teacher if you can afford it, but practice is the most important yeah. thing. It's no good doing five minutes a day and ten minutes a day. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You've got to put the work in yeah. and the more you practice, look, the more you practice, the quicker you become a player. Well, they're obviously having because you probably practised enough to actually suddenly find yourself keeping up with the rhythms and everything else yeah freedom one day it just happened it just happened yeah, yeah. just 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 suddenly happens yep yeah. yeah
What What do you reckon is the most unusual instrument that you play? Oh, God, they've got many peculiar instruments. One is called a berimbau, which is Brazilian, which is basically, it must, the root of it must come from a bow and arrow because it is a bow, and you do play it with a stick. You could argue that that might have been a, an arrow at one point, but it has a gourd attached to it, cut in half, which acts as a speaker, and then when you strike the string, if you like, yeah. the, of the bow, it almost sounds like an acoustic guitar, like a, if you imagine a one-note, acoustic guitar mm. you can easily mistake it on records as as, uh, as an acoustic guitar at first my first instrument i ever bought which was very weird which is what i was asking robin about at the wag that time how does how does he play it? it's called a quicker it's the first thing i ever bought and i actually bought it with me oh wow this is actually this is actually it so, and, so people who are listening it's a small cylindrical almost like a paint tin yeah like yeah and, and it has a, a stick inside connected yeah. to the skin yeah, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm sure originally it would have been used to replicate am, animal noises mm. there are people that have taken it this playing this to such an art they can actually play a if you like a, a tune on it almost because they've got such control of the fingers but you hear it in sambas all, all the time <laughs> to mind Brazil and carnivals and Rio and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing, amazing instrument. Yeah, that was the first thing I ever bought because I was hearing that on a lot of jazz, funk and fusion things. What, what the hell? Is it? it took a long time before I could narrow it down to find out it was called a quica. I need to go and listen to some music now and look for that instrument somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 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 That's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And yeah, it was always there. If you, even if, if people are into retro stuff like Carmen Miranda and stuff like that, I mean, obviously you hear you hear that on Carmen Miranda songs back in the thirties and forties, but you would never have known what that what it was. Yeah. You know, this is an interesting drum I bought with me called a, it's called a, a Gebolo, again Brazilian. It's a great accompanying drum. You know. Extraordinary. So, have you have you actually played those on stage? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a Quaker is actually even as exotic as it is and as strange as it sounds, it's a very, very common percussion instrument. And um, I, I, I've recorded with it so many times. Okay. My keyboard player Neil Angilly, he's he has a, a, a trio, goes out and he's always gigging. And uh, once in a while, he asks me to be a special guest. And then when I do that. He likes me to do a like a quicker feature there, yeah. you know, because the audience like it. Because it's say such a yeah. a weird sounding instrument. I've used it on so many recordings; it's not funny. Yeah. So touring. Yeah. Let me ask you about touring. Where's the most extraordinary places you've been? And also, obviously, you've been surprised by the appreciation of the music that you've been doing. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, it's, good, it's a good question. It's it's quite hard to say because you know I've I've really played in so many countries done so much touring i mean nearly 40 years you know i've, I've been touring now with a break obviously <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been to some dangerous places but not but not you know places like chile 
where it's just about to kick off there you know with it we you know with the you, you could the, 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 there's talk of an uprising kind of thing and mm. it hasn't quite happened while i've been there yeah i always remember once in sao paulo you know in brazil we were staying in a hotel it was a lovely hotel and they said you can go out the hotel and go left but you can't go out the hotel and go right you wow. know mind you I, I was told that advice once about dc you know about 30 years ago really? you know so washington dc so yeah. Never really got myself into any hot water. Luckily, I'm not. I'm not that adventurous. So I'm. I'm not. I'm a bit of a home mm. bird, as they say. Um, What's it like as, as life as a touring musician? Tough. The hardest thing about touring is is the, the, the amount of t- time that's wasted. You know, it's mind numbing. Mm. You take loads of stuff on tour with you to, to to do on the bus or on the plane or in sound check. You never end up doing it. You end up napping half the time because you, you're bored. You should be out having a walk or you should yeah. be writing something. or But you never do because you you, you, you feel frazzled mm. the, the whole time. I mean, it's a lovely life. Yeah. And I mean, my my late dad was a, a builder all, all his life and, and he hated his, his work. So I, oh, and, and, and I always remember how hard it was for him. So I don't, uh, so for any, any listeners that think I'm equating what I do for a living hard in comparison to manual work like that, then mm. then no. But it's just it's a long time away from home and family and stuff. It's, like it's that, very isn't it? it's very very disorientating. Yeah. yeah, it's very very disorientating. Some of your favourite venues that you've played? Well, God, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many. I mean, obviously Ronnie Scott's, of course, is, is yeah, you, you can you, you can never get over how incredible that is. But yeah. in, the most peculiar place, of course, is as I said earlier, the American R. Stadium in Brazil, which is one hundred and twenty thousand. Is it? Something? No, no, a quarter of a million. Is Qu- it? Yeah, a quarter of a million. Th- that where they were on the pitch, uh, in, over, inclu- in, including, including yeah, the pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 My favourite gig ever, and the most beautiful venue uh, is, is, is local. The Palace, the, the Palace Theatre. I read that on Facebook about that. Yeah, yeah. You Palace said it was Theater. one of the most memorable gigs you ever done. Yeah. you ever done. Yeah, and and it, it was just extraordinary. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, I, because. As some of your listeners will know about Roy Hudd, you know, the, the late Roy Hudd, one yeah. of the greatest comedians, if you like, always touring around all the theatres around the UK. And he always said that Palace Theatre is one of his all-time favourite. And, and I'm not surprised because the auditorium is so beautiful and ornate. And it's it's incredible to sit in the audience and look at the stage and you sit there thinking, oh, but I tell you, it's just as incredible being on the stage looking out. Yeah. What's nice about it is it, it's deceptively big there. It looks small, that theatre, but because it's uh, all the tiers are quite close to the stage, but it's quite high. It actually holds 650 people, including the gods. Because you, you must have had quite a few memorable experiences on that stage with in your theatre days with you? uh, no because when I when I was the little th- when I was with the little theatre club we did the shows at the Cliffs Pavilion ah, which obviously okay. is an enormous yeah, yeah. theatre you know yeah. 18, 1850 people yeah. Yeah. so that's that's where all the our shows were then I always wanted to play the Palace I've played there twice a friend of mine Flip put me on there and then a few years later my friend Ria wanted to put me on in, in the area and I said I'll, I'm not being funny and I, so I don't mean to put you to any expense, Ria. Really. I said, but if you do want to put me on, I'm only interested in playing at the Palace Theatre at that point because I, I I loved it so much the first time I did it. And the second time I did it, I, I just never known anything like it in my life. I, I'm on stage. You could feel it before I even went on stage. You know, when, I, when I walked on stage, the cheer was enormous. 
you, as you look around the room on the different levels, I saw so many faces that I knew that don't know each other, but I knew them. You mm. know, there's a pocket yeah. there from the little theatre clubs, a pocket there from the Hadley Cricket Club, some friends that were travelled from Bristol and Swindon, and some aunts and uncles, and there's my brother there, and you know, and, and there's, there's there's Sarah and the girls, are, my wife and the kids, the kids are up in the, you know, it, it, and it's almost like your life in front of you. Yeah. And yet all these people don't know each other. Yeah. And yet I'm looking out and I'm seeing all these familiar faces. Obviously loads of people. Are, and just general friends, people you know from the scene. The lovely thing is, playing at a theatre, I know I, I had some reservations from some friends that said, trouble is you can't dance, you know, and I like to see, I want to dance when I see your band. Well, of course, Everyone what, what they did, they, they? people, luckily, they, they were very kind at the Palace and they did let people dance down the side. But what was lovely is I, I got a chance to chat more between the songs because I didn't have to keep that yeah. momentum up. Yeah. So it was. So I really got a chance to look around the room and really talk to people, and that's what made it so special. Did it, it felt like you were coming home? Did it? I, I've done loads of home gigs, if you like, and they're always amazing, but nothing like this. When I was talking to the audience, you could you could hear a pin drop. They were listening. Amazing. You know, and then I did, and I and I did this conga solo, and next thing you know. There's a standing ovation, like in the theatre, and, and I'm looking round, and it's almost feel like bursting into tears, you know. Wow. So you've worked with um, lots and lots of artists over the years, mm. um, some of who we mentioned yeah. at the start, and recorded with, and played and toured with. Who are the ones, the standout ones for you? Who you know, either you've learnt something from, or you know, the, the musicianship is phenomenal. Well, I mean. I mean, really, I've had a lifetime at that gym. Really, you know, I mean, it's 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 quite hard. I mean, it, it, there's from a jazz perspective, obviously, you know, you can never get over being sat next to Diodato on stage. Of course, I mean, there's a massive influence. His, his music means a lot to me. To be able to play that the music that I know so well of his with him is beyond belief. Yeah. There's a jazz singer called John Lucian. The general public don't know John but in the jazz world obviously John Lucian's a, a god almighty and I did a week with him at Jazz Cafe once and and we remain friends for the rest of his life after that he was, he's really his songs are so iconic and he's got such big rich almost napkin cold style voice but quite Latin fusion and and his music always meant a lot to me so to to play with him on stage I never got over that yeah. I mean it was incredible yeah. I mean from a pop perspective obviously I've played with Lisa Stansfield since her debut album. I've been with her ever since, and she, and I, I co-produced her last album. Well, she said she considers me a brother, you know, because we're that close, yeah. and, and and I feel that way towards her as as a sister. Um, she's she's quite an amazing woman, beautiful person. I've had some incredible touring experiences with, with her, and and I and I never cease cease to be amazed at what a singer and songwriter she, her and and her husband are I worked with Mark Ronson f over a year on and off and but with Mark on stage was was Amy Winehouse and and, oh, wow. and Lily Allen but I already knew, I already knew Amy Amy Winehouse from if you like the scene that I'm involved in yeah, you know yeah. like we everyone was just not even one degree of separation away and yeah. I always remember once playing two nights at the jazz cafe and I didn't know this but I knew I obviously I knew Amy was there because she was she'd been in our dressing room before the show but what I didn't know was that while we were on stage performing someone was holding her back because she was trying to get on stage to, to 
to, to sing with us. I don't know if she'd have got up there. I don't know what she would have sung because obviously we were playing Afro-Cuban jazz. Yeah. But she was that drunk, you know, and then she... she got, and I hadn't seen her for a few years and then obviously I started working with Mark Ronson and then at that point she, she did every show and, and Lily Allen mm. and immediately we kind of struck up our friendship again and she, she was... In actual fact, we were rehearsing one day at a club in in London with Ronson and and Mark brought this song along and he said, oh, well, I've just finished mixing this this morning. Amy wants to do it in the set tonight. Can we learn it in the sound check? It was rehab. Really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's extraordinary. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you did it in a sound check? Yeah, did it in a sound check and then, then, we, we, then we performed it that night. Can't remember the name of the club. It was kind of a, an out-on-out like house music kind of club in in near Exmouth Market. I can't quite yeah. remember where. It doesn't it doesn't even matter. But anyway, but uh, but yeah, I had some amazing amazing times with Amy. And, and funny enough, she said because this was right at the height when all the press were hounding her, and she was going, "I don't understand what the fuss is about. I'm only I'm only young and enjoying myself." And she really did think yeah. that. She didn't f- feel that what she was doing was was excessive, you know. So. so it was quite sad, really, to 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 see the decline of her like that. But she was really, really lovely, lovely person. Have you got any advice for people who are thinking about getting into the music industry, Jim? That, that is such a, a such a hard question because, and the reason it's a hard question is because because I fell into the industry. You know, I, I never intended, you know, to be in it. I can't remember who it was that said once about show business. It's called show business. Get your business sorted out. I think at music college, if they don't teach the business side of things, they should do because you need, you know, because I, 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 I no, think- listen, I agree. I mean, I, I, when I went to drama school, you weren't taught how to, to put your business head yeah. in order and and to progress. You were just taught how to, uh, well, the technique of acting and, yeah. and everything that went with it. And it's probably yeah. the same at music college. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that's definitely the case. I think that. Even if you're young, young and ambitious, don't go around treading on people's toes. Absolutely. Look for opportunities, but I tell you what, you can make enemies very quickly. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious. You must be ambitious. But I think things have changed an awful lot, haven't they, as well? Because you've got the likes of YouTube now. You can, you know, record at home. There, there are lots of things that you can do now that you weren't able to do. Yeah, but there's too much though, Jim. This is the problem. Right. Okay. It, it, what's great about home studios is that. Yeah, I mean, you, you can do some incredible recording at home now. Yeah. The, the problem is, and, and there's so much talent out there, I mean, ridiculous amounts of talent, and there always was ridiculous amounts of talent going back to the be- ever beginning of the music industry. Mm-hmm. But the, the only problem is that the great thing about digital is that it is quick, quick to record at a great quality, but we're flooded with it. Yeah. We're flooded, it's flooded what, with music. Where do you look for the next, the next best mm-hmm. thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're completely flooded with it. Yeah. So, so much amazing stuff gets overlooked. Is there anything that you're listening to at the moment that's new that you could point us in the direction yeah. of? No. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that says a lot about the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, yeah. There is. Um, no, no. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing out there folks <laughs> no 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 I've got no I've got no I've got uh, do you know what it is 
I still listen to, to so much stuff. I, I don't buy so much as, as I used to, but then that's called having a, a, a daughter at, at dancing school. But, I mean, luckily I get sent a lot of, of, of stuff. Yeah. And there's so many amazing artists out there from all the, all the world. So, so, okay, so if you... I said to you, right, you're going to go home now or you get in the car or whatever mm. and you've got to put some music on. What would you put on now? What would you, what would you play? What would you listen to? There is a, a brand new album by an artist called Katie Tatham who's a, a jazz fusion keyboard yeah. player. He's, he's got a brand new album. Everyone's raving about it and rightly so. It, it's real cutting edge jazz fusion. Right. Yeah, uh, out and out. And, uh, and he's made, he's made a f- quite a few albums Everyone has known him for years in that world, but for some reason, these last few months, everyone's talking about Guide. He's, I mean, he's, he's not that much yeah. younger than me. Yeah, it's almost like his time is now. Like everyone knows about him. But yeah, artists over the past twelve months have been basically doing nothing because everything's been locked down. Been really, really tough for anyone in the performing arts industry. Yeah. So, have you been keeping busy during the lockdowns, Mark? It's interesting you say that about artists because I've never known so much music being made, and not by me. I, I, I must say, the thought of making another album at the moment is which would completely fries my brain. But I've never done so many recording sessions in the last year uh, that, than I've done in my whole career. You know, probably three times as many recording sessions. Mm. So many people are making music at the moment because recording studios have been considered a place of work, so yeah. they've all been open. For, yeah. for, and there's for, nowhere you can tour, so no, no. just taking time out to, to record. Yes, there's been some amazing music being made, suddenly starting to come through. There's a, Nigel Price, the jazz guitarist, his, his album that's about to come out is phenomenal. I just did that just before Christmas. Rhythm and blues singer Laura B, her, her stuff, uh, jazz fusion singer Emily Saunders, her, her album's due out. There's so much recording's been done, and, and it's been great for me. I've, I've been really enjoying getting in the studio. I've been practising as much now and really enjoying it as do as much practice now as when I first started 37, 38 years ago. I've been in really, and, and of course, teaching, which is doing a lot of teaching. I, I was just going to say that even now, as a master percussionist, mm. you are still practising to, to the level that you're. Yeah, and slowly. I really enjoy. This yeah. is the thing I kept saying to my students: to practice slowly. I enjoy, I really enjoy it. I can play as fast as you like. But it's really great just to play really almost too slow. Yeah, you yeah. really think about your technique. Technique. It, yeah, yeah. It's, the bacateo. It's all about the bacateo, folks. I'll <laughs> 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 get, get a few head scratching. Yeah, <laughs> it's the hand technique. Of hand, included of mine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I've got to ask you this. I, I, I remember hearing the term, okay, yeah. acid jazz. And yeah. I could not work out what that was No, through possibly my own naivety. No. I was still trying to work out what acid house was at the time. But, look, but looking at your journey, you were part of the creation around at that time of acid jazz, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if, if you like the scene that was... There was a bit of a mixture where a friend of mine, Chris Bangs, and Giles Peterson... Who's, become very 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 famous dj around the world owns a radio station called worldwide fm as well and a record label called brownswood now giles and chris bangs they were they they were kind of doing these really amazing club nights that were quite jazz based but mixing rare groove funk and bits of soul you know everyone was was going to these nights uh there was there was a big there was a big collection of djs but like they were the cat the catalyst if you like 
I won't go into the whole story of how the acid, word acid jazz came about, but it was a joke term, acid jazz, because they were actually they were playing this not this music after some acid house. It might have been Art Blakey or something. They were playing this. They followed this acid house DJ, and then Chris Bangs said, "Oh well, if that's acid house, this is acid jazz." Okay, and that's how that term came about. Right. Okay, so if you like this kind of scene with all this mixture of music, it was. This was the 90s, right? No, no, this was 87, right, 88. Okay. Yeah, early 90s was, was the height of it, if you like. Yeah. Uh, early 90s. And this is, the, see, this is the problem, because what started off as a joke, acid jazz, then people were saying, what is acid jazz? Mm. You know, and, and people were making music saying, this is acid jazz. And it's like, well, the third album on acid jazz, as a record label, because then they formed a, a, a label, acid jazz, just to kind of, like as part of the joke as it were the third album on acid jazz was my debut album which was out and out latin jazz mm. there was all kinds of music being played it was if you like it was a movement it was a joke term that everyone said oh the acid jazz scene if you try and define what exactly acid jazz is it was quite hard because if you think brand new heavies james taylor quartet you know myself uh Jamiroquai, the latter end of that scene you know yeah. it's so it's not it's not all very very established musicians yeah well. yeah yeah and there's a jazz edge to to all of it you know you're never going to be able to put your finger on what ex- people think they know what acid jazz everyone thinks they know what acid jazz is but in actual fact they're never going to know and this was the problem when it exploded and then the students suddenly started to cut all the universities went mad for it and the colleges yeah it, i'm into acid jazz it was the, it was in all the media but really, no one knew because no one was in on the joke. No one was. It was our. I'm still asking. <laughs> I've just asked you the question, and I'm yeah. still, now I know. Now I've yeah. got a, that was the clearest picture of uh, explanation of acid jazz I've ever had. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So DJing. Yeah. I mean, you you you've done a lot of DJing, and and yeah. How did you end up doing a residency at the South London Soul Train? Well, I. The, the guy, uh, Mick, Mickey Smith, that owns the Bussy building, or, or that, it's called the CLF Art Cafe, it's, it's four-floor warehouse, basically, that he turned into a performing arts... There's a gallery there, the two massive stages. Um, I, I knew Mickey from the early 90s. He, he used to live in Hong Kong as a city worker, if you like, and um, he used to type putting on events over in Hong Kong and he used to fly me over uh, from the UK to go and DJ and I did eventually play with my band at one point as well. He used to fly me over to Hong Kong just for the one night and then day later had to f- fly home again. And that's what a lifestyle. I know, I know. Well, imagine, but my... One night. One night, but my head was frazzled for two weeks after. It wasn't really worth it. No, you know, it was only probably the money. It was probably only just a bit more than you would get at a club night in London. But yeah, but the experience, of the that, experience. Yeah. But so that's where I knew Mickey from. So when he opened up this CLF Art Cafe in in Peckham, he he said, "Come and have a look." You know, I, I, you know, I'd love to get your band there one day. And and anyway, so I I did end up DJing there, and it's it ended up it's running nine years up until lockdown, and it's a phenomenon, you know. It's one of these things that's a phenomenon. It's four floors, and it's all funk soul, yeah, just yeah, yeah, funk and soul pre- predominantly, all the different permutations of it, uh, and a live band each week. It could be Afrobeat, it could be uh, it could be funk, it could be Brazilian, it could be New Orleans brass band, funky brass band, and very young crowd. The average age was 22, yeah. 21, 22 there. 
1,000, 1,200 people, so it's every Saturday night, queuing down the road. At my age, you know, to have a residency like that, and I had one floor to myself, just playing funk with with different guests each week, you have to pinch yourself to get an opportunity like that so later on in life uh, to to have an incredible residency like that. And I'd only just stopped a residency in Soho at Madame Jojo's at that point, which so and that was a very high-profile, considering it's a tiny club, so to go from Madame Jojo's to to that was immense. Yeah. And just like Paris, the owner of Madame Jojo's, and like Mickey at South London Soul Train, they're very happy for me to go off and play with my band. Yeah. They said, "Well, look, that's the, that's what makes you Snowboy." Yeah, you know, you, you're known as a DJ, but of course, you're not Snowboy unless you're allowed to to play live. Yeah. We that they couldn't stop me to play li- live on a Saturday night. So what I do is I tend to. You know, I'm very faithful to the residency and, you know, I'll make sure that I, I don't mind busting a gut kind of playing live with my band somewhere and driving back two or three hours, to even if I get there at one o'clock in the morning to, to, to play through till five, mm. I'll do it, even though I'm completely heads all over the place because I respect the residency. Yeah. So how did you start DJing then? What, what drew you to the decks? Okay, so from a club point of view, it was the gold mine. Uh, again I said I was 17 when I went in there and I was hiring the club out at 17 years old I shouldn't have even been there or shouldn't have even been allowed in there <laughs> they never asked me my age and I didn't even I, I didn't even know those were the days weren't they yeah and I, and I didn't even know it was wrong to I never told my parents I hired it out they said it's a, it'd be a hundred pound yeah. if you don't get you have to guarantee a hundred people in and if you don't then it's then there's a higher fee to pay, which was a hundred pounds. And in 1978, 100 that was a hundred pounds. Was a hundred pounds? I mean, flipping out. I was so stupid, and I. But luckily, we never had a disaster. Yeah. But I'd been the resident DJ at at school, at Dean's School in in Thundersley. The metalwork teacher built a DJ console, there and he did all the school discos. And then and then he he wanted someone to help him, assist him. So I did that. And then in the end, he let me. Do them. Do, yeah, yeah. So I was uh, at 15 years old. I was the the school DJ, if you like. Yeah. So leaving school and then loving the gold mine so much, and starting to collect the records. When I when I turned up with my records at the gold mine, that wasn't my selection that I'd selected for the night. That was all I had. <laughs> you know, so it was 70 or 80 records. But I just had to play that music yeah. to how, the crowd. How many records have you got now? About 30,000. Literally a room full. 30,000 yeah. albums. Yeah. Do you yeah. catalogue them? Do you, are they all in order? They're not catalogued, but they are they are in alphabetical order yeah. and by music style, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. So I know where everything is. So let's talk about the Latin section. Yes. Yeah. Because I've been to a couple of your gigs, Mark, and as a band leader, I've never seen anybody with as much energy who kicks... <laughs> I don't know where. I've never who, got energy normally. Uh, but you <laughs> kick all of the, the band members right up the jack seat and make sure they deliver... Yeah. Just the best possible sound, the biggest energy on stage. It's just it's a phenomenal thing. How did the Latin section start? What what, what happened? Well, what happened is is that I, I got record deal. Like my first album on Acid Jazz, I'd, I'd had three singles before that as Snowboy in the Latin section. It's a very 80s sounding band name. I, I I don't like the name of the band now, but uh, it was at the time it sounded, you know. Echo and the Bunnymen, Susan the Banshees, blah, 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 and the uh, Snowboy in the Latin section scene. I don't know what how the name came about now. So I had three singles, and then um, 
then I had a record out on Polydor just under Snowboy and then uh, then when I got the album deal with Acid Jazz which was my first album I still went back to using the name Snowboy in the Latin section but we weren't a live band it was a, it was just purely a, st- a studio project name right so the lineup of musicians on there on that first album was, was pretty phenomenal some real heavyweight musicians on there the band is not the same musicians now, but it's st- my band I is was very. Say, you've got some some seriously heavyweight musicians on. Well, the they're way. all almost virtually all of them are, are artists in their own right. You know, they've all got their own albums out. Yeah. You know, David yeah. Giovanni, David Amantovani, Neil Angilly. Yeah, Dave Patman on the bongos. Dave, Dave Patman, who's the authority on anything Afro-Cuban. Anything Afro-Cuban. Mm. So. You see, the thing is, I was doing a lot of pop work in the 80s, and then I started playing with the James Taylor Quartet at the end of the 80s, who, who was the biggest act on acid jazz. In that acid jazz scene, I mean, we, we played... Uh, you may have heard a venue, uh, of a venue in Kentish Town called The Forum. It used to be called Town and Country Club. Yeah. And that holds, that holds 1,800 people, right? Mm. Now, one year, when the first year I joined James, we played there 12 times in one year. 12 times, and 11 of them were sold out. Yeah. That'd be like someone doing twelve nights at Hammersmith Odeon yeah. or, or something. So that's how big James was. So I was doing all this pop work. I was doing James Taylor quartet and releasing my own records and doing pop sessions. And then one day, an agent phoned me up in the in the early nineties and said, "You don't know me. I don't know if I can represent you. I've been getting inquiries about booking you, for, and I don't even know, you know, if, if you're playing out or what what, you, what you're doing." And I. And I suddenly thought, oh dear, and I could see it coming. I thought, well, you know, really, is a record label going to keep on... This was my third album by then, and there was demand for me to play live. And I spoke to the record label, and, and they and they said, well, really, you're not supporting these records, you know. We're, put, we're, we're putting all this money into, you, into your records. You're putting them out, and you're doing interviews, but you're not going out on the road and supporting them. Yeah. And really, a penny had dropped... I thought, actually, yeah, I, I can see that yeah. I can't get away with this. Yeah, I, My life was too good. I was too busy yeah. playing with other people and getting my own music out. And all of a sudden, again, about time you supported your own records, mate. Yeah. You know, that's basically the the bottom line. Mm. I've done a few kind of jam kind of gigs, what they call descargas, which is Latin slang for, for, a, for a jam session. Up until that point, but up until about 92, I suddenly started actually officially playing with Snowboy in the Latin section as a live band rather than as, as, as a studio project. And that first year was quite incredible. We did about 60 or 70 gigs just in one year, you know, which yeah. was, uh, in fact, never never done that amount since. But that was that was the height of Atta Jazz, if you like, as a scene and everyone wanted us. We were playing everywhere. We were on TV, doing TV shows and selling loads of records and... Uh, I've always been in awe of my musicians because I realised that it's me fronting it and it's, it's it's my band name, but I fully respect the talent of every one of those guys on stage. You know, They are hugely talented. They're, they're all the, immense. I, I realised that it's a band. Yeah. It's not me. You know, I'm the front man, mm. you know, and I like, you know, chat with the audience. And I do, I notice sometimes someone else is doing the most phenomenal solo known to man on stage. Yeah. And the audience are still looking at me. Yeah. And I'm thinking, no, look over there. You know, that's where the action is at the moment. Yeah, but I have to say, I was uh, this morning I was looking at watching you on YouTube mm. with your band, and I'm thinking, you look like a front man. You have a charisma about you on stage. You, you know, they're the, 
there is a there is something that you're drawn to with you, Mark. I mean, I'm, I know I know you. But, well, it's but, probably because I'm a hulking, great big bloke. <laughs> well, not necessarily. I think yeah. I think I think you have a stage persona that mm. that, that is recognised. Thank you. I mean, what I love about the sort of band thing in general is is that you all sort of depart and do your different things and then come back together again, don't you? And yeah. There might be one member of your band who's playing in another band that night, so you get somebody in who depths. Yeah, like Sid, my trumpet player, I mean, he's always away with Incognito, yeah, always. I mean, he's probably one of the busiest musicians I know. His diary is ridiculous, but... Is it so- difficult? Is it difficult to dep? and get the quality of musician you're looking for because you've got as you've obviously alluded to you've got this phenomenal band yeah so you now you've got someone going off and doing something else is it gonna is it difficult to Um, to, to fit them in or get someone you want to replace yeah Uh, well the thing is um john is that i think over over a period of years that there's been various depths that have come in that have really fit with us now i kind of have a list of if so-and-so can't do it you know then i then i'll Call, you know blah 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 and and know full well that they already fit with everyone that you know, and and it's very and is it nepotistic i don't know if that's the right word but like everyone knows each other in that world anyway so there's are, are we talking sort of afro-cuban jazz world um Latin, or is, are we just talking musicians in general there are a few in my band that just are just afro-cuban players yeah, they're quite specialist aren't they? quite specialists but on the whole a lot of the a lot of the musicians in my band play Afro-Cuban music, but they are also jazz players, you know, and on the the, the highest level. But then again, you could say that about the the, the great Cuban supergroup Irakiri. That you know, they they are. I mean, they are Cuban, but they're out and out Afro-Cuban. But there's none jazzier than them either. They're all you know, they all play just as, as well. You know. And how did you acquire your encyclopedic knowledge of Afro-Cuban music? I don't want to say it's like encyclopedia, but thank you. Um, just from being obsessed with the music and and reading up a lot on it, and I'm still reading up a lot on it. I, I learn I learn all the time, you know. So much, so much to learn. There's huge amounts of history involved in it, isn't there? Huge amount of history, yeah. Going going right the way back, yeah, 1700s. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal, isn't it? And 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 you know, it's an interesting. It's like all these specialist things, isn't it? That the more you read on it, you you even find even those that are the real knowledges, you know that like the real scholars in that you can even find mistakes that they make you know yeah. that you think oh well I know that's that that's wrong I think really you you can only just do the best you can and like uh, as an enthusiast you know as I say I, I'm learning all the time even even now and I, I, I love it you know I love it it's just it's just you should never stop learning should you that's a good thing in life anyway absolutely and I'm curious about your your book. You know, you became an author. When when was that? When did you decide? Um, that came out in 2009. So what what drew you to to write a book? Um, well, because the, the the kind of jazz world that I that I grew up in in predominantly in the 80s, you've got a lot of um, real heavyweight dancers that followed it. Like it was almost like the faster you played, the more that they would dance, and they were the most incredible dancers ever. They almost looked like, if you like tap dancers or something or you know or all freestyle dancers mm. very unique all, all untrained and this is why my records are like for salsa dancers i mean i'm playing music that technically is salsa but three times the speed you know because i'm not from the salsa world i come from the jazz world and but i know that dance world very well yeah. so my music kind of reflects 
that, I, you know, I'm more interested in getting them to freestyle dance rather than people to, yeah. to couples dance. Yeah. Although on my albums, there's, there is enough for it for every, my, I mean, my stuff is played in the salsa world around the world. Yeah. But you were horrified. I, I read that you were horrified by some of the salsa music played in salsa classes and, yeah. and such like. Is yeah, that... yeah, so so insipid what they dance to these days. It, it's, it's almost like they just dance because the tempo's right yeah. rather than the content yeah, of it. Yeah. All these salsa events everywhere. They're, they're not even booking bands. You know, it's just it's just DJs and the, and the DJs are just so many of them are just playing lowest common denominator just to keep people on the floor. So my book. Really, the scene that I grew up with yeah. from the late seventies and through the eighties, through this kind of jazz and then acid jazz and and all this kind of stuff, the jazz funk scene. So that's what my book's about. Luckily, yeah. because I've been there from the beginning, I knew who all these people were, and and if I didn't, I was only one degree of separation away. So, yeah. do you think you got another book in you, Mark? No, You're no, not. no. No, no, I wouldn't. I, I didn't enjoy it. I oh, didn't, didn't you? No, no. It took me, it took me over a period of ten years to do it. Not yeah. because it took me ten years to write, because there was a couple of years where I stopped altogether because I got so disillusioned with it. But are you glad you did it? I mean, you, you say you didn't enjoy it, but do you, are you glad looking at it now you did it? I'm glad. I'm, the pain. I, I, yeah, I'm glad I've done it as it because it's a historical document. Uh, so it does tell the history of a scene. It it doesn't exist anywhere else that yeah. this this that that history. It's available on Amazon. It's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still it's still in print, but it's just that I don't have any copies at home anymore. I mean, authors don't. I think you get your you get your twenty copies when it comes out, and then and lockdown lockdown is over fairly soon for um, artistic types. Yes, so we can start going to gigs and enjoying gigs again. And, yeah, and you've got uh, another one coming up, haven't you, at Jazz Cafe? Yeah, yeah. We've got quite a few coming. Actually, it's very interesting got that you've got the jazz cafe i think Which 18th, is, uh, 18th is it 10th, 10th of july oh 10th of july 2021 yeah tickets available now D- indeed we've got Rittle jazz festival which we're headlining which is uh in um, august boysdale uh, pardon the boysdale but uh, and, oh no that, that's not been announced oh, yet. Be announcing. <laughs> doesn't matter no, you didn't hear that folks you didn't but that's at the end of september um we're headlining south end jazz festival which went on sale yesterday which is 17th of October. Another, there's another major jazz festival just about to accept the booking later on today. So I can't say what it is, but it's in the South Coast. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, lot of really, really nice things. All, they're all suddenly st- starting come to come in. in yeah. So it goes to show that there's a lot of confidence out there yeah. uh, that things are going to start back moving. together. We were talking, Jim and I were saying the other day, we were thinking, oh, one of the things we wanted to ask you is, what would be your guilty pleasure in music that you know you think actually you know what it's it's a way possibly from what I do do normally but something that you know you actually enjoy. I co-run the thirties and forties weekend, uh, which I, I don't advertise. It's sold out yeah. a year in advance every year. Put orchestras on. I don't perform at it except I do run the sing along every lunchtime with a pianist. Uh, no, we don't have any electric keyboards or anything like that. There has to be a proper piano. Again, I grew up with sing-along through family parties and holiday camps and that, and so I love running it. I'd love to do a, a sing-along album, but not no one know it was me, you know. <laughs> uh, um, I'm consi- and, I, and I'm considering doing it, you know, just as a, as a... That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Do you want I'll come along? I'm not sure you should be uh, volunteering me there, Johnny. I haven't yeah. heard me sing. yeah. 
you know i can i can certainly help out with maybe some congas in the background <laughs> congas on the sing-along <laughs> maybe um, but that I, won't work i mean i, I there's so much music i i do I, I, you know what i'd really love to do and um, i've been so close to it in the past but i'd love to it's the funding I, i'd really like to do a period perfect 50s mambo orchestra like a 20 piece 22 piece yeah out and out powerhouse machito tita puente xavier cougar tito rodriguez and would you film authentic in, would you film the video in cuba funny enough there is a band doing that from cuba and they sound amazing but it's still not as authentic as i'd want to do it i mean our mine would be you know that but that would be a fantasy for me mm. to, to be in front of of a, a massive band like that playing that powerhouse music but it's cost prohibitive yeah so going back to I mean, you referred to the early days and, and yeah. musicals. Is there a, a musical that you, you you have a guilty pleasure listening to? Something sort of. Oh, well, I'm up. No, I'm up with all the musicals because because obviously my eldest daughter's a yeah. dancer, but but both my daughters. So are... if I said to you, Mark, what would you listen to now? If I said to you, go listen to a musical album or a, a tape or whatever, what would what would be the musical thing? Oh, that... I mean, musical wise, I mean, I've I mean, I've got hundred hundred musical CDs I mean obviously I'm going to keep going back to West Side Story of course I am but I, I love all of the cl- the classics but you know but then something about Jamie all that stuff I really I like I like all these I go kicking and screaming to a lot of these the modern shows thinking I'm not going to enjoy them but I obviously go because you know my wife and children don't want to kick, they love all the modern ones and I sit there and and I think they're incredible great songs Waitress, I mean, amazing. This, this, the score for Waitress is amazing, you know, amazing. So much great stuff. I tell you what, say guilty pleasure, it's never, ever going to happen, but just to do another show with a little theatre company, you you know, it it's never going to happen because I won't be able to commit to rehearsals. But I'm an honorary member of, of, the, of the club and I could, I could do it, but I can't do it. Well, you heard it here first. Yeah. If, if it was ever to happen... There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you should make that happen because I think you. It's impossible. Uh, no, is it? Oh, well, shame. It, it is a shame. It is a shame. That's why I gave up. That's why I reluctantly gave up because I got so busy as a musician that I couldn't make the rehearsals anymore, and I couldn't guarantee that I was going to be around for show week. Yeah. So, just what I, there was a question I also wanted to ask you: Is there any missed opportunities you've had in your career? Because you you've had so many fabulous opportunities, but was there ever one that you thought, you know what? I should have done this, or I missed that. Yeah, there was a, a percussionist, I won't say his name, but he was always being offered all the major pop stuff, rock tours, and he, he went off to do a tour for two years, which would have made him a million pounds, and his agent said to me, he's going to be away, I'd like to give you his, his work. And I was so busy with what I was doing, and I was still doing JTQ, and I was doing Lisa Stansfield, and I couldn't see how the hell I could do it. And I often wonder what, you know, often wonder what would have I would have been offered it had I have I've gone with her, you know, because she was she just got everything, you know. And mm. uh, but I was as busy as I could be at that time, anyway. Well, so, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. So I often wondered. You know what, what might have happened there, but other than that, no, I, I don't think I've got any regrets. Other than that, I'm very happy with what I do. Yeah, and and you are delivering some amazing work, certainly in terms in terms of teaching, in terms of the band, and the session work that you're doing. 
Thank you. Um, conscious that uh, we've taken up an awful lot of your time. Really appreciate you coming your time's in money, Jim. and talking to us today. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got an up-to-date website, which uh, there's lots of information on, snowboy.info. That's it, snowboy.info. Um, so you can get further information about Snowboy's albums. And, and you can contact me through it as well, there's a, and there's a mailing list as well. So Perfect. Well, all that remains, Marcus, to say thank you so much for talking to us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. It's been great to see you. No, uh, thank you. Thank yeah, it's been really amazing. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please like, subscribe and tell your friends. For further information, please visit us at www.needlefishgroup.co.uk.